Chapter 71 of Romola by George Eliot. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Goldfarb. Romola by George Eliot. Chapter 71 The Confession. When Romola brought home Tessa and the children, April was already near its close, and the other great anxiety on her mind had been wrought to its highest pitch by the publication in print of Fra Girolamo's trial, or rather of the confessions drawn from him by the sixteen Florentine citizens commissioned to interrogate him. The appearance of this document, issued by order of the Signoria, had called forth such strong expressions of public suspicion and discontent that severe measures were immediately taken for recalling it. Of course, there were copies accidentally mislaid, and a second edition, not by order of the Signoria, was soon in the hands of eager readers. Romola, who began to despair of ever speaking with Fra Girolamo, read this evidence again and again, desiring to judge it by some clearer light than the contradictory impressions that were taking the form of assertions in the mouths of both partisans and enemies. In the more devout followers of Savonarola, his want of constancy under torture and his retraction of prophetic claims had produced a consternation too profound to be at once displaced, as it ultimately was, by the suspicion, which soon grew into a positive datum, that any reported words of his which were an inexplicable contradiction to their faith in him had not come from the lips of the prophet, but from the falsifying pen of Ser Ciccone, that notary of evil repute, who had made the digest of the examination but there were obvious facts that at once threw discredit on the printed document. Was not the list of sixteen examiners half made up of the prophet's bitterest enemies? Was not the notorious Dolfo Spini one of the new eight prematurely elected in order to load the dice against a man whose ruin had been determined on by the party in power? It was but a murder with slow formalities that was being transacted in the old palace. The Signoria had resolved to drive a good bargain with the Pope and the Duke of Milan, by extinguishing the man who was as great a molestation to vicious citizens and greedy foreign tyrants as to a corrupt clergy. The frate had been doomed beforehand, and the only question that was pretended to exist now was whether the Republic, in return for a permission to lay a tax on ecclesiastical property, should deliver him alive into the hands of the Pope, or whether the Pope should further concede to the Republic what its dignity demanded, the privilege of hanging and burning its own profit on its own piazza. Who, under such circumstances, would give full credit to this so-called confession? If the frate had denied his prophetic gift, the denial had only been wrenched from him by the agony of torture, agony that in his sensitive frame must quickly produce raving. What if these wicked examiners declared that he had only had the torture of the rope and pulley thrice, and only on one day, and that his confessions had been made when he was under no bodily coercion? Was that to be believed? He had been tortured much more. He had been tortured in proportion to the distress his confessions had created in the hearts of those who loved him. Other friends of Savonarola, who were less ardent partisans, did not doubt the substantial genuineness of the confession, however it might have been colored by the transpositions and additions of the notary. 
but they argued indignantly that there was nothing which could warrant a condemnation to death or even to grave punishment. It must be clear to all impartial men that if this examination represented the only evidence against the frate, he would die not for any crime, but because he had made himself inconvenient to the Pope, to the rapacious Italian states that wanted to dismember their Tuscan neighbor, and to those unworthy citizens who sought to gratify their private ambition in opposition to the common weal. Not a shadow of political crime had been proved against him. Not one stain had been detected on his private conduct. His fellow monks, including one who had formerly been his secretary for several years, and who, with more than the average culture of his companions, had a disposition to criticize Fra Girolamo's rule as prior, bore testimony, even after the shock of his retraction, to an unimpeachable purity and consistency in his life which had commanded their unsuspecting veneration. The Pope himself had not been able to raise a charge of heresy against the frate, except on the ground of disobedience to a mandate and disregard of the sentence of excommunication. It was difficult to justify that breach of discipline by argument, but there was a moral insurgence in the minds of grave men against the court of Rome, which tended to confound the theoretic distinction between the church and churchmen, and to lighten the scandal of disobedience. Men of ordinary morality and public spirit felt that the triumph of the frate's enemies was really the triumph of gross license, and keen Florentines like Soderini and Piero Guicciardini may well have had an angry smile on their lips at a severity which dispensed with all law in order to hang and burn a man in whom the seductions of a public career had warped the strictness of his veracity may well have remarked that if the frate had mixed a much deeper fraud, with a zeal and ability less inconvenient to high personages, the fraud would have been regarded as an excellent oil for ecclesiastical and political wheels. Nevertheless, such shrewd men were forced to admit that, however poor a figure the Florentine government made in its clumsy pretense of a judicial warrant for what had in fact been predetermined as an act of policy, the measures of the Pope against Savonarola were necessary measures of self-defense. Not to try and rid himself of a man who wanted to stir up the powers of Europe to summon a general council and depose him would have been adding ineptitude to iniquity. There was no denying that towards Alexander the Sixth, Savonarola was a rebel, and, what was much more, a dangerous rebel. Florence had heard him say, and had well understood what he meant, that he would not obey the devil. It was inevitably a life-and-death struggle between the frate and the pope, but it was less inevitable that Florence should make itself the pope's executioner. Romola's ears were filled in this way with the suggestions of a faith still ardent under its wounds, and the suggestions of worldly discernment, judging things according to a very moderate standard of what is possible to human nature. She could be satisfied with neither. She brought to her long meditations over that printed document many painful observations, registered more or less consciously through the years of her discipleship, which whispered a presentiment that Savonarola's retraction of his prophetic claims was not merely a spasmodic effort to escape from torture. But, on the other hand, her soul cried out for some explanation of his lapses, which would make it still possible for her to believe that the main striving of his life had been pure and grand. The recent memory of the selfish discontent which had come over her like a blighting wind, along with the loss of her trust in the men who had been for her an incarnation of the highest motives, had produced a reaction which is known to many as a sort of faith that has sprung up to them out of the very depths of their despair. It was impossible, she said now, that the negative, disbelieving thoughts which had made her soul arid of all good could be founded in the truth of things. 
impossible that it had not been a living spirit and no hollow pretense which had once breathed in the frate's words and kindled a new life in her whatever falsehood there had been in him had been a fall and not a purpose a gradual entanglement in which he struggled not a contrivance encouraged by success looking at the printed confessions she saw many sentences which bore the stamp of bungling fabrication they had that emphasis and repetition in self-accusation which none but very low hypocrites use to their fellow-men but the fact that these sentences were in striking opposition not only to the character of savonarola but also to the general tone of the confessions strengthened the impression that the rest of the text represented in the main what had really fallen from his lips hardly a word was dishonourable to him except what turned on his prophetic enunciations he was unvarying in his statements of the ends he had pursued for florence the church and the world and apart from the mixture of falsity and that claim to special inspiration by which he sought to gain hold of men's minds there was no admission of having used unworthy means even in this confession and without expurgation of the notary's malign phrases fra girolamo shone forth as a man who had sought his own glory indeed but sought it by labouring for the very highest end the moral welfare of men not by vague exhortations but by striving to turn beliefs into energies that would work in all the details of life everything that i have done said one memorable passage which may perhaps have had its erasures and interpolations i have done with the design of being for ever famous in the present and in future ages and that i might win credit in florence and that nothing of great import should be done without my sanction and when i had thus established my position in florence i had it in my mind to do great things in italy and beyond italy by means of those chief personages with whom i had contracted friendship and consulted on high matters such as this of the general council and in proportion as my first efforts succeeded i should have adopted further measures above all when the general council had once been brought about i intended to rouse the princes of christendom and especially those beyond the borders of italy to subdue the infidels it was not much in my thoughts to get myself made a cardinal or pope for when i should have achieved the work i had in view i should without being pope have been the first man in the world in the authority i should have possessed and the reverence that would have been paid me if i had been made pope i would not have refused the office but it seemed to me that to be the head of that work was a greater thing than to be pope because a man without virtue may be pope but such a work as i contemplated demanded a man of excellent virtues that blending of ambition with belief in the supremacy of goodness made no new tone to romola who had been used to hear it in the voice that rang through the duomo it was the habit of savonarola's mind to conceive great things and to feel that he was the man to do them iniquity should be brought low the cause of justice purity and love should triumph and it should triumph by his voice by his work by his blood in moments of ecstatic contemplation doubtless the sense of self melted in the sense of the unspeakable and in that part of his experience lay the elements of genuine self-abasement but in the presence of his fellow-men for whom he was to act pre-eminence seemed a necessary condition of his life and perhaps this confession even when it described a doubleness that was conscious and deliberate really implied no more than that wavering of belief concerning his own impressions and motives which most human beings who have not a stupid inflexibility of self-confidence must be liable to under a marked change of external conditions 
In a life where the experience was so tumultuously mixed as it must have been in the Frates, what a possibility was opened for a change of self-judgment, when, instead of eyes that venerated and knees that knelt, instead of a great work on its way to accomplishment, and in its prosperity stamping the agent as a chosen instrument, there came the hooting and the spitting and the curses of the crowd, and then the hard faces of enemies made judges, and then the horrible torture, and with the torture, the irrepressible cry, it is true what you would have me say. Let me go. Do not torture me again. Yes, yes, I am guilty. O oh God, thy stroke has reached me. As Romola thought of the anguish that must have followed the confession, whether in the subsequent solitude of the prison conscience retracted or confirmed the self-taxing words, that anguish seemed to be pressing on her own heart and urging the slow, bitter tears. Every vulgar, self-ignorant person in Florence was glibly pronouncing on this man's demerits, while he was knowing a depth of sorrow which can only be known to the soul that has loved and sought the most perfect thing, and beholds itself fallen. She had not then seen, what she saw afterwards, the evidence of the frate's mental state after he had had thus to lay his mouth in the dust. As the days went by, the reports of new unpublished examinations, eliciting no change of confessions, ceased. Savonarola was left alone in his prison and allowed pen and ink for a while, that, if he liked, he might use his poor, bruised, and strained right arm to write with. He wrote, but what he wrote was no vindication of his innocence, no protest against the proceedings used towards him. It was a continued colloquy with that divine purity with which he sought complete reunion. It was the outpouring of self-abasement. It was one long cry for inward renovation. No lingering echoes of the old vehement self-assertion. Look at my work, for it is good, and those who set their faces against it are the children of the devil. The voice of sadness tells him, God placed thee in the midst of the people, even as if thou hadst been one of the excellent. In this way thou hast taught others, and hast failed to learn thyself. Thou hast cured others, and thou thyself hast been still diseased. Thy heart was lifted up at the beauty of thy own deeds, and through this thou hast lost thy wisdom and art, become and shalt be to all eternity nothing." After so many benefits with which God has honoured thee, thou art fallen into the depths of the sea, and after so many gifts bestowed on thee, thou, by thy pride and vainglory, hast scandalised all the world. And when hope speaks and argues that the divine love has not forsaken him, it says nothing now of a great work to be done, but only says, Thou art not forsaken, else why is thy heart bowed in penitence? That too is a gift." There is no jot of worthy evidence that from the time of his imprisonment to the supreme moment Savonarola thought or spoke of himself as a martyr. The idea of martyrdom had been to him a passion dividing the dream of the future with the triumph of beholding his work achieved, and now, in place of both, had come a resignation which he called by no glorifying name. But therefore he may the more fitly be called a martyr by his fellow men to all time. For power rose against him, not because of his sins, but because of his greatness, not because he sought to deceive the world, but because he sought to make it noble. And through that greatness of his he endured a double agony, not only the reviling and the torture and the death throw, but the agony of sinking from the vision of glorious achievement into that deep shadow where he could only say, I count as nothing, darkness encompasses me. 
yet the light I saw was the true light. End of chapter 71